Welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to at davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 29th episode of this podcast, recorded on Friday, September 22. Thanks to this podcast's sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. Want to know who the guest will be for the next Original Jurisdiction podcast? Follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for a preview. Most of my guests on the podcast are lawyers, but I've had some honorary lawyers as well, people whose work is of keen interest to the legal world. That would describe my latest guest, New York Times tech reporter Kashmir Hill. I consider her an honorary lawyer, not just because so much of her work has legal implications, but because her first job out of journalism school was working at Above the Law. She was the third editor of ATL after myself and Ellie Mistal. Then she did a bunch of other stuff, and now she has a great new book out, Your Face Belongs to Us, A Secretive Startup's Quest to End Privacy as We Know It. It should be of great interest to lawyers, since acclaimed attorneys like Paul Clement and Floyd Abrams play important roles in the narrative, and since legal issues, including the future of privacy law, are really at the heart of this book. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Kashmir Hill. Kashmir, thank you so much for joining me. Hi, David. It is my pleasure. So we have known each other for years, I think since 2006. But for my listeners, let's cover your background and your very interesting career. I believe you grew up in Florida. I grew up in Sarasota, Florida. I went to Duke for undergrad. Didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. Took the LSAT, thought maybe I'll become a lawyer. But I wanted to try it out first. So I went to Covington and Burling and worked as a paralegal for a couple of years. Worked at a nonprofit called the National Press Foundation that did journalism education, which is where I had the the great luck to meet and befriend you. And <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> then went into journalism in part by subbing in for you one day at Above the Law and then getting to be a writer and editor there for years. Went to NYU for grad school to study magazine journalism. And then, yeah, got into journalism. I worked for Forbes. I worked for a startup called Fusion. I was at Gizmodo for a while as an investigative reporter. And now I'm at the New York Times. Well, it's very interesting. I like to say that I knew you way back when, or I think we could say your your first full-time job in journalism, right? Above the law, breaking media. Yes, absolutely. It was so much fun. I do consider you an honorary lawyer. You have extensive legal knowledge from all your years on reporting on law-related issues. You were at Above the Law. Your husband Trevor's a lawyer. You were at Covington. You mentioned you took the LSAT. What led you to not go to law school. And I don't want to put you on on the spot about Covington, but I'm sure there were other, there must have been some reasons you decided not to go to law school. So two reasons. One is that when I was at Covington, I was so lucky. I got to do a pro bono rotation at a legal aid society. And I loved the work so much. I was working on social security cases. I actually got to represent a client at one point in, you know, a social security administration hearing. Yeah, I loved the work. I thought it was so great. But the lawyers who worked there asked me how much I made, which I think as a paralegal Covington at the time was something like $30,000. This is 2003. And they said, wow, you make more than us. They said, if you're going to do this work, just know that you're going to make possibly less than you're making as a paralegal. You mean the lawyers who worked on the pro bono matters? 
the lawyers who worked permanently at that point at the legal aid. Oh, legal aid. Yes. Yep. They worked at legal aid. And yeah, Covington would like send lawyers and paralegals there okay. to do it, like a six-month rotation to do the good work before you went back to the firm. And then the other reason was kind of at Covington itself, I didn't love that you didn't get to decide, you know, what side of an issue we're on. You had to do what was in the best interest of your client, even though if you didn't kind of feel strongly about that client. And there was a lawyer there many lawyers actually who said, don't become a lawyer. You'll be chasing carrots your whole life, always trying to, you know, go to the best law school, go to the best law firm. And at the end of the day, you're just miserable, but you have to do it because you have to pay off your law school loan. So yeah, so I love the law, but many people kind of discouraged me not to do it. And I think journalism in many ways is so similar to the law in terms of fact-finding, you know, telling stories, building a case of some kind. And so I feel like I'm law adjacent. Yes. And I think you definitely made the right choice as reflected in your amazing career success. And I totally agree with you. People ask me about this myself. And I say, I think that the legal skills translate very well, as you mentioned, the fact finding, the narrative building, the writing, the communication. So speaking of writing, congratulations on your face belongs to us. It is a great read. And there's a lot of material that will be of interest to my listeners who are usually lawyers, law students. And we'll get to that in just a sec. But just to start at the beginning, for people who are not familiar with it, and it's been getting a lot of great buzz and publicity, but for people who are not familiar with it, what is the book about? So the book starts a few years ago. It was November 2019. And I got this crazy tip from a public records researcher in Washington, D.C., who had sent out a bunch of FOIA requests to police departments around the country asking what facial recognition technology they were using and how much they were paying for it. And he got a response from the Atlanta Police Department that caught his eye and he knew I'd be interested. And so he sent it my way and he said, this company is doing something crazy. They're selling our Facebook photos to the cops. They've crossed the Rubicon on facial recognition technology. Would you be interested in doing a story? And it has this 26-page PDF from the Atlanta Police Department. I open it up. The first page is a legal memo, <laughs> marked Privileged and Confidential, written by Paul Clement. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this? And I start reading it, and it's, you know, the former U.S. Solicitor General under George W. Bush at, at Kirkland Ellis, now in private practice, has been hired by this company. And he's describing what they've built. And it's Clearview AI had scraped billions of photos from the public web, including social media sites like Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Venmo, without the consent of, you know, anyone whose faces they were collecting to build a facial recognition app that could identify people, it, it claimed with something like 98.6% accuracy, you know, you upload their photo and it will pull up elsewhere on the web where their photo appears along with links to that photo. And it was secretly selling it to police departments, hundreds, Paul Clement said in this memo, and no one knew about it. Wow. It is very interesting. I was fascinated to see a prominent lawyer and former OJ podcast guest Paul Clement figures so prominently. I think he shows up in the first couple of pages, actually. And I think we'll get to it a little bit later, but I think that his blessing of Clearview saying that it was all fine and there were no legal issues, I, I guess there was at least one wrinkle in at least one state. But we'll, <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. So I think you were 
narrative about Clearview AI and about facial recognition technology is quite balanced in a lot of ways. And you paint a very nuanced portrait, I think, of the founder, Juan Tontat. But I guess if I had to say if there's a villain in the book, it probably is facial recognition technology. And two of your blurbers, John Carreyou and Garrett Graff, both use the word dystopia or variations on it in their blurbs. And I think it's fair to say that the book raises questions about whether a future with widespread use of this technology might be dystopian. But as you note in the book, there are many positive uses of this technology. It has been used to solve countless crimes, including murders, rapes, child sexual abuse. There's an amazing story about how one person was picked out off of a tiny background in an Instagram picture. Clearview gave this technology to Ukraine to help them identify Russian soldiers and spies. I think the most amazing thing to me in the book was actually how it was used to apprehend January 6th criminals. When I saw that horrific footage of the attack on the Capitol with hundreds of people who were not arrested at the time, I thought, they're never going to catch any of these people. And lo and behold, they've made more than a thousand arrests. And who knows how many of them were done through Clearview. So I guess my big question is, and sorry for rambling a little bit, are you underselling the positives of facial recognition technology? I really did try to balance it in the book. There's actually one legal use that you left out, which is Clearview AI was contacted by a defense attorney who was Oh, yes, the public to, defenders. Yes, trying to exonerate his client who'd been in a car accident with a friend. And it friend, worked. Yes. And it worked. And so Clearview said they were going to offer it to public defenders. But then when I contacted public defenders to say if they would take Clearview AI up on the offer, they said, most of them basically said, we see this as an evil technology. And just because, you know, we have access to it too, doesn't justify it in our minds. And, and yeah, we don't want to use it because if we use it, then police are going to say that it's okay to use it on our clients. So except for one investigator who works with public defenders and he was like, great, get me that free account. I'm going <laughs> to use this all the time to find witnesses. But yeah, I mean, in a book like this, I want to be fair. And so I tried to include both the positive cases that you talk about and also the negative cases that, you know, facial recognition technology can go wrong sometimes if police don't do enough investigating and they basically get a hit on someone and based that and little other evidence, they arrest them. That can have horrific consequences for people. There are a handful of people that we know of that have been arrested you know, basically for the crime of looking like someone else, including most recently Portia Woodruff, a woman, a black woman in Detroit, Michigan, who was eight months pregnant and had police show up on her door on a Thursday morning when she was getting her kids ready for school to arrest her for robbery and carjacking. And she spent the day in jail. She was charged. She had to hire a lawyer to fight the case. Eventually it was dropped because the woman who committed the crime a month earlier you know, wasn't visibly pregnant. They were not the same person, but a facial recognition technology system, you know, along with a, an analyst thought that they looked similar. So with any kind of technology, there's just such a range of uses and there's going to be very positive uses, but there's also going to be harms. And part of what I want to do in the book is demonstrate the harms. So maybe lawmakers, policymakers are aware and that is the kind of use you try to prevent. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the next best step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. And follow NextFirm on LinkedIn for updates on future original jurisdiction guests.
So you're absolutely right about the false arrests. And I think the story of Mr. Williams is really a terrible story. And he didn't even look that much, it seems like, the person that they... It was Mr. Williams, right? Yeah, Robert Williams. He's like yes. a suburban dad. He was the first person it happened to in yep. Detroit. Yeah, and he was arrested in front of his family. And yeah, exactly. And his daughter's traumatized. But let me play devil's advocate. One thing that occurred to me when I was reading the book was, it seemed that the positive uses that you outline in the book were mostly things that actually happened, like arrests of child predators. And it seemed that the negative things were mostly things that might happen, like totalitarian regimes using this. I guess it was offered to Hungary and Orban, but he didn't take them up on it or something. So is it the case then, perhaps, that the positive things are actually happening and the dystopian things are sort of possibly happening but haven't happened yet, other than these false arrests? Well, usually with a book like this, you would say, oh, here's, you know, here's what could happen. Here's the worst case scenarios. I didn't actually have to do that. All I had to do was point at China, which, you know, China and Russia are both much farther along in terms of the deployment of facial recognition technology than we are here in the United States. And yeah, it has been used by Russia against protesters against the Ukrainian war in China against protesters in Hong Kong to identify them, you know, to later give them tickets. China, you know, it has been used on Uyghur Muslims to help track them and control that population. China has used it for kind of wild things that feel almost fictional, you know, automatically giving people jaywalking tickets just based Mm. on kind of a facial recognition match, public shaming people who wear pajamas in public, used it in public restrooms in Beijing because they had toilet toilet paper thieves. Yeah. And so you had to look into a camera, you know, register your face print to get something like nine inches of toilet paper. And then if you needed more, you had to wait seven minutes and to look into the camera again. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, you know, there's, I also talk about just kind of what this looks like in the hands of individuals. And I think there's one very creepy chapter, a man who came to me because I write about facial recognition technology to confess the way he was using it. He told me because he wanted lawmakers to know, he actually wanted lawmakers to act and prevent this use because he couldn't stop himself. And he basically, he's a porn addict and was using, Clearview AI is limited to police use, but there is kind of a, a, a very similar technology called PimEyes. PimEyes.com. Which is online. I went on it the other night just out of curiosity. Yeah, I'm happy to run your photo through there if you want your <laughs> results. I do have a subscription. And yeah, it, it does what Clearview does. Its database of images is not as robust. I don't know if the facial recognition algorithm is as good as or not. I haven't seen like an accuracy test for it, but he uses it to, you know, unmask porn actresses and find out their real identities, find their, you know, he described finding for one woman from a casting couch video, finding her photos from a spring formal in high school on Flickr. You know, these didn't even have her name, but he used those to to get to her high school and find out who she was. And then he would use it to search the faces of all of his Facebook friends to see if they had any risque photos. And he found them. He found revenge porn that was not linked to their name, but was linked to their face. Yeah, no, that is chilling. I do remember that chapter and it was quite disturbing. So I think that is definitely, you know, worth noting. So turning to the legal stuff, we talked about Paul Clement and there are other appearances of other prominent lawyers, a First Amendment guru, Floyd Abrams, FDC Commissioner Alvaro Bedoya. And I would say lawyers have been very important to the history of Clearview, both 
on the offense and on the defense. The company even had an event you talk about in the book called Lawyer Appreciation Day. I think lawyers would love to be more appreciated. So how would you describe the role that lawyers have played in the Clearview story over the years? Yeah, I mean, when I first exposed the existence of Clearview AI in January 2020 in the New York Times, it led to just a huge backlash for the company and lawsuits around the country, investigations around the world. And so they hired a lot of lawyers, Floyd Abrams, as you mentioned, Lee Linden, and they basically needed to hire lawyers in every country where an investigation happened. And so it was Australia, Canada, the UK, France, Greece, Italy. I'm probably leaving some off. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot. And, you know, one of the kind of battles I really focused on, because I just thought it was so interesting, kind of a clash of the First Amendment titans, but was ACLU sued Clearview in Illinois because Illinois has this, this law, the Biometric Information Privacy Act, passed in 2008 that says that people, you know, are entitled to protection over their biometrics. And if a company wants to use it, your fingerprint, they need your consent. And otherwise, they have to pay up to $5,000 in fines to you. And so, yeah, that was a really interesting battle. And it was two lawyers, Nathan Wessler and then Vera Edelman, who she went to Yale Law School had done clinics at the Abrams Institute, had seen Floyd Abrams speak. And so it was really interesting to see these two come down on very different sides of what the First Amendment should allow in terms of information collection and analysis. And in the early skirmishes in that, in terms of trying to get the lawsuit dismissed, I believe that the ACLU and Edelman prevailed over Floyd Abrams. But then the case got settled in the end, I believe. Yeah, I mean, Clearview tried to get its lawsuits all around the country dismissed based in part on First Amendment arguments that all it's doing is taking public photos that are on the Internet and organizing them, you know, by face, that there's no private information that's getting exposed. They're just like Google, except instead of Googling someone's name, you're Clearviewing their face. But yes, judges did not necessarily buy that as a reason to dismiss the complaints against the company. And none of them have gone to trial yet. The ACLU suit did settle and Clearview agreed not to sell its kind of database of now 30 billion faces to kind of private companies or individuals that it would only work with governments and, you know, police officers. And it paid the ACLU's legal fees. And it was after that case settled that they did the Lawyer Appreciation Day <laughs> and, uh, and sent out invitations to all their law firms, all their lawyers around the world. And it said, please don't bill me, but do come <laughs> to this party to celebrate you. Yes, exactly. I love and, that line. Yeah, and they served a, a special signature drink called the Subpoena Colada. <laughs> so you mentioned in the book that Clearview has been the subject of tons of lawsuits, tons of regulatory inquiries. How much would you say the ongoing lawsuits and regulatory inquiries, how much of a threat do they pose to Clearview going forward? Are they an existential threat to the company? So the ACLU suit settled in Illinois. That was a state suit that wasn't seeking money. It wasn't seeking the monetary damages. The ACLU just wanted essentially to prove that BIPA applies to Clearview's conduct. But it's also facing a class action lawsuit at the in federal court there, and they are seeking money. And BIPA is a very expensive law to break. 
you know, it's $5,000 per person. And so that can add up very quickly. I talk in the book about a lawsuit in Illinois against Facebook over automated photo tagging. This was like from 10 years ago when they started, you know, when you uploaded photos of your friends, it would suggest what their name was, right? Do you remember that? Yes. And so they were sued when class action lawyers basically discovered that BIPA Biometric Information Privacy Act was on the books. Kind of people didn't know it was there for a while and they kind of discovered it in 2015, sued Facebook. Facebook paid $650 million to settle that lawsuit. If they'd gone to trial and lost, they could have owed something like eight, I think, billion dollars because $5,000 times millions of people adds up pretty quickly. And so Clearview is in the midst right now of settling this federal lawsuit. I don't know numbers yet, but they have told the court Yes, we're, we've come up with a framework. And so the question is, how much is it going to be? They also face tens of millions of euros in fines in Europe, where privacy regulators have said what Clearview AI did was illegal, that you, you know, under their privacy laws, can't collect people's information like this. And Clearview has not paid any of those fines yet. They're appealing it. They're fighting it. But I do think if they did have to pay, it would be an existential threat. The company has only raised $30 million from investors. And I haven't seen their books. You know, I don't know exactly how much they're making from all the police departments that they work with. I do know that Department of Homeland Security has contracts worth $2 million over the years. The FBI is a client, but they're not paying that much. So yeah, so I, I don't know what happens once all of these complaints kind of come to an end or come to some kind of resolution. I was struck by how Clearview didn't have a higher valuation because for such a company with such a transformative product that's being used widely by many law enforcement departments, you would think they would have a higher valuation. And I know that uh, Peter Thiel only kicked in a couple hundred thousand dollars and, you know, got a pretty significant early position there. But I'm curious, you mentioned BIPA, which is the Illinois Biometric Privacy Act. And you tell the very interesting story of how that law came into being, which was pre-Clearview, actually. And you tell the story about James Ferg Kadima, who you describe as the only guy who saw it coming, I think is the title of the chapter. Why isn't there a law like this in every state? Or is there? I mean, I don't know what's happened since BIPA. I mean, you know, once one state has a good idea for a statute, a lot of other states copy it. I mean, are these going to start happening all over the place? Or is there going to be a federal statute? I mean, that was the ACLU's hope in their suit against Clearview AI. They wanted to say, hey, look, Like, this works to protect citizens. Maybe other states should pass laws like this. Texas has a very similar law, except there's no private right of action. And so if you, you know, want a lawsuit against somebody for using your biometrics, you have to hope Ken Paxton, the attorney general, (laughs) will file it on your behalf, you know, who will enforce the law. Washington has a biometric act as well. It specifically excludes photos. So I don't think, Hmm. uh, I'm not a lawyer. Again, I'm just an honorary one. I don't know that it would apply to something like Clearview. What we do have is quite a few states now that have passed privacy laws with access and deletion in them so that you can go to a company and ask what information they hold on Hmm. you and delete it. California, Colorado, uh, Virginia, and Connecticut are among the states with laws like that. They might be the only ones. And so you can, if you live in one of those states, you can go to Clearview AI or you can go to PimEyes and you can say, hey, here's my photo. Here's my driver's license proving I am this person. I want to know what my results are. And then you can say, delete them. So 
you know, I, at the federal level, I don't know. Part of what I do in this book is track the many, many times that people have come together to talk about facial recognition technology and say how scary it is and how it needs to be regulated. And they never do anything about it. And it's so interesting because there's so many strange political bedfellows. In 2001, it was Dick Armey, you know, conservative leader, teamed up with the ACLU to put out press releases. John Lewis, you know, civil rights leader, was leading the impeachment into Trump. He has since passed but he held a hearing with Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows about facial recognition technology. And there on the very conservative side, you know, Mark Meadows went on to be chief of staff for Trump and they acknowledged it. And they said, hey, we don't agree on a lot of things here, but we do agree that we need to do something about facial recognition technology so it doesn't become this dystopian tool that's used to track us and invade our privacy. So mm -hmm. I do think privacy is a very interesting topic in, in that it is bipartisan. Yes, absolutely. And also, you know, one thing that struck me, and there was a great excerpt adapted from your book in the New York Times about how there were companies before Clearview, big tech companies that had developed versions of this technology and sort of almost voluntarily withheld them from the world because they were worried about the consequences or the implications. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, I mean, as far back as 2011, Eric Schmidt, the then chairman of Google, said that this kind of facial recognition technology where you can take a photo and, you know, put a name to a stranger's face was the one technology that Google had developed and decided to hold back. I think it would actually need to be updated now because I think Google did something similar with generative AI where they had a kind of chat GPT type technology that they also sat on and let OpenAI get to it first. Same thing with Facebook. I got to watch this incredible video of engineers at Facebook in 2017 in one of the little conference rooms in Menlo Park and totally absurd had a smartphone kind of standing on the brim of a baseball cap kind of held in place with rubber bands. And when you looked around the room, when the smartphone camera settled on a face, it would call out the name of the person. So it was like a really janky augmented reality glasses type contraption. And Facebook too decided, yeah, we don't want to be the first ones to put that out there. And so they sat on it, they held it back and it took Clearview AI coming along and doing something that was not a technological breakthrough it was an ethical breakthrough where they were willing to do what others weren't. Are there other major competitors to Clearview AI in the United States? You mentioned that Russia and China and other authoritarian regimes have very good facial recognition technology. And in the book, you talk about their high scores or success rates as well. But in the United States, is Clearview really sort of the dominant player now in terms of who's actually let the technology loose or are there others out there? And is anyone making it? I know you mentioned PIMIS. Is anyone making it available to individuals? You have a bunch of great stories of celebrities and Ashton Kutcher and John Katsimidis and other people sort of getting like bootleg or beta versions of it and trying it out. Like, is there anyone who's going to give it to individuals, especially since Clearview seems to say we're only giving it to law enforcement? I mean, not based in the United States, but yeah, PIMIS is a public face search engine. It's on the internet. It's owned, you know, by a professor who lives in the country of Georgia. It's headquartered in the UAE, legal services from somewhere in the Caribbean. <laughs> but, you know, the global internet, it's available everywhere. You're supposedly only supposed to search for your own face, but there's no technical measures in place to 
ensure that. And, oh, whoops, I missed that. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I have a subscription and I can run 25 searches per day under my $30 per month subscription. So I don't, you know, who is just searching their own face 25 times a day. <laughs> and, you know, there are lots of other facial recognition companies around the world and in the U.S. And I hear a lot from those vendors. They are very annoyed at Clearview AI. They think Clearview AI is ruining it for everyone because they've done something so radical and so transgressive. And most of these other vendors sell an algorithm. And they are selling you an algorithm to put on your own database. So let's say you're, you know, let's talk about Madison Square Garden, a very relevant to lawyers. Madison Square Garden is using a facial recognition company that does not supply the database of photos for them. It's not like Clearview AI. Instead, you know, Madison Square Garden creates their own watch list. So maybe they have, I don't know who they have on their watch list beyond lawyers right now, but, you know, maybe people who have, you know, been violent in the stadium, gotten in fights there, or they held up a sign saying James Dolan spells a team, or maybe they're terrorists, you know, it's on top of Penn Station and Madison Square Garden always says, you know, this could be terrorist act, but they create their own watch list. And so to ban lawyers, they weren't able to like just type in ban all the lawyers, they had to go to law firm websites and, you know, go to all those bio pages and get lawyers photos. And then they put it into the system and then they can block those people. It's a matter of creating a blacklist. And so that's the difference between most companies and Clearview AI. Clearview AI, the radical thing about them is that they brought their own huge database. So these other companies, they basically wanted to let you use it on your own contacts, essentially. Yeah. And there were a lot of facial recognition companies that have been working, you know, for decades now with police departments. But again, they would rely on the police departments to supply the database. And that would usually be at first it was criminal mugshots. And then once people kind of got comfortable with that, they said, well, let's add state driver's license photos. You know, State Department used it on passport photos to check for fraudsters who were kind of applying for visas under someone else's identity. DMVs use this to, again, prevent identity fraud. So there are a lot of other companies besides Clearview AI that have been doing this for a long time. Well, I think the legal and ethical and philosophical issues it raises are very interesting. So I urge people to check out the book. So turning to my final four questions, my little speed round, these are four questions that I ask pretty much the same to all my guests, although I think I've tweaked maybe one of them for you. My first question is, what do you like the least about the law? And this can either be the practice of law or law as a more abstract system. I think maybe just how hard it can be to pass a law. And mm -hmm. then when it does get passed, how random it can be. Like at the federal level, I always think of the Video Privacy Protection Act that was passed to protect your video viewing history because of Robert Bork having his like oh, blockbuster yes. rentals yep. come out. And same thing with the Illinois law, that chapter I did. It came about because there was this like random startup that had collected people's fingerprints and it went bankrupt. And all of a sudden everyone was freaking out that they might sell Illinoisans fingerprints. So they passed this law. You know, just how arbitrary it can be when you finally get a law. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope my listeners, many of whom are lawyers and law students, will think about whether or not they want to get involved in law reform on this issue in their particular state or jurisdiction. My second question is, what would you be if you were not a journalist? 
Oh gosh, if I was, I love being a journalist so much. It is such a great career. What would I have done if this hadn't worked out? Maybe I'd be a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. You talked about that. You took the LSAT. You worked at a law firm. So yeah, and clearly you're very interested in these issues. My third question is, how much sleep do you get each night? Uh, around the time that, like last night, I think I got four hours. So I hope, I hope I'm on my game here in the podcast. I mean, I would ideally get seven to eight hours a night, but sometimes when I'm excited about something, whether it's a story I'm working on or the book coming out, I just get so much adrenaline and -hmm. I just wake up at three or 4 a.m. and I start looking at my phone and I can't go back to sleep. It's horrible. (laughs) Well, I guess it's a good problem in a way. My final question is, Any parting words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for my listeners? The thing that I always say, usually to journalists or aspiring journalists, is to follow your curiosity. And yeah, just if you are really wondering about something, if you have questions about something, feed that. I think it could just be so satisfying and it can lead you into a great career that makes you happy and is in, you know, creating a niche. I always think about, you know, you. I mean, you were such an inspiration to me as a young journalist or not yet a journalist wanting to be a journalist because you created Above the Law out of thin air because you loved writing about the law. And I kind of felt like I was falling in your path when I started the first blog I did, the Not So Private Parts, that was a privacy. And now it's my whole career for 10 years. So yeah, follow your curiosity. I'll say that. I think that's a great note to end on. You followed your curiosity and the result has been this fantastic book. So congratulations again. And thanks for joining me, Cash. Thank you, David. Thanks so much to Cash for joining me. She's one of the most talented journalists and storytellers working today. And you should definitely check out her book, Your Face Belongs to Us. Thanks to Nextfirm for sponsoring the Original Jurisdiction podcast. Nextfirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. To explore this opportunity, please contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers. To connect with me, email me at davidlatt at substack.com or find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, but it's made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode should appear two weeks from now, on or about Wednesday, October 18. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects. <laughs>